Uh, welcome here, everybody. It's really, really great to have you, but we do want to kind of introduce uh, this fall to you, where we're going together. Uh, I hope that as you walk through the doors, you got a doubt guide that looks like this. If not, please grab one uh, on your way out this morning. So glad you're here. Fall kickoff is an exciting Sunday, so let's get right to it. Look, one of the challenging things about church is it can feel like everyone's got it together except for me, right? Like no one else is struggling, no one else is hurting, everyone else's faith is strong. Meanwhile, I'm plagued with doubt or I'm hurting. It can feel lonely, church, even while not being true. As a society and in the church as well, we have an aversion to suffering. So, so Christians, like everyone else, can tend to hide behind a thin veneer of cheerfulness, of, hey, how you doings? Oh, I'm doing great. Oh, good. Well, just under the surface lurks pain and doubt. But Everybody doubts. Christians doubt. Atheists doubt. Spouses doubt. Do they really love me? Are they really being faithful to me? So this fall, our sermon series is entitled Doubt, and we're going to address many of them. But before we do, I just want to ask a basic out-of-the-gates question. What causes us to doubt our faith? I think there are a number of answers, and I certainly am only going to give a few. There are more. But some of the big ones would be, uh, first, observation of injustices on a global scale. Like, you just look out at the world, you watch the news, uh, you hear about horrors on this planet, and it can cause you to doubt the faithfulness, the goodness of God. Is Jesus really ruling and reigning? Another reason why we might doubt is, is, is through a lack of personal encounter with God. A few years ago, a massive study was done across our nation um, called Hemorrhaging Faith about why teens, even as young as middle school, seem to be leaving the church in a pretty major way. But it was all also a really hopeful study in that it showed a couple key uh, elements of what keeps teens participating in the faith and in church. One of them was, this was the primary one, the mentorship, the discipleship, the, the love of at least one person older than that student. Somebody who they saw at church, wasn't a family member, but they knew cared about them and was investing in them, loved them. And the second thing that, that kept teens in church was actually having a personal encounter with God. Like, I believe in God and I've witnessed him moving in my life. So therefore, one of the faith doubts that we can have is I don't experience God in my life, his presence. He doesn't feel real to me. Now, there are a couple reasons why this might be. One is because perhaps we've never invited Jesus 
to rule and reign in our own lives. The, 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 the Holy Spirit of God is not indwelling in us. And so therefore, we will not have those encounters with God. And the invitation always stands to come to Jesus and to encounter him for yourself. But another reason, we're going to look at it a little bit later this morning, another reason why um, lack of personal encounter with God can, can cause us to doubt is just because of dark nights of the soul. Like you're, just, you're going through a season where it feels like you're hitting a wall, your prayers are hitting the, a wall. You don't, you don't, you're not enlivened by your reading of the scriptures and those kinds of things. Along with that, uh, unanswered prayer can cause doubt. I've been praying for this person I love that they would come to Christ for so long and they haven't. And you start to doubt God. Or there is this obstacle, there is this situation that has not been remedied and I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and I wonder where God is and so I doubt. Another reason why Christians doubt is a sense that Christianity can't hold up to modern science and reason. There's a narrative today that even though actually Christians invented what we know of as modern science, there is a narrative today that's actually saying Christianity, you you may as well just say anti-intellectualism because those words are interchangeable. And so there's this doubt that creeps in, like, can my faith stand? Is this, can I reasonably believe in God? Another reason why um, you might doubt is a misunderstanding of who God is, or put another way, bad theology. I'll give you just one example. If you, if you believe that, that the primary thing God wants to do in your life is make you prosperous, like that all of life will go well for you, that he will give you wealth and those sorts of things, just a really obvious example here, and then he doesn't, you begin to question God because he hasn't met your expectations, but those expectations were never who God said he was in the first place. And so a misunderstanding of who good is, misapplied theology can be a reason for our doubt. But probably the most dominant reason is not so much an intellectual reason as a personal, emotional reason, and that is personal suffering. I've always known that there are hard things out there, but right now there's hard things in here, and that causes me to doubt the God that I've been worshiping for years. Now, I mentioned it already, but the kind of community we want to be this fall is a community that makes it safe for one another to share our doubts. A few years ago, I read a really fascinating article about the, the differences, some of the differences between British comedy and American comedy. Now, we're Canadians, so we sit right in the middle of that Commonwealth and our neighbors to the south where we have perfect comedy. Uh, but uh, the article was specifically about some lesser comedy of the Brits and the Americans. And I tried to find it this week and couldn't, but actually read a lot of great articles on it that really made me laugh. I was sharing them with many people. But here's the thing that I remember and I want to share. Um, a good, the example in the article I read years ago was they, they used the show The Office as the example because it was, in, it was uh, created by a, comed- a British comedian named Ricky Gervais and there were two seasons of The Office in England and then it became a show in the US, different cast and a bit of a different feel. And, and so one of the distinctions that, that shows kind of the difference between British comedy and American comedy was 
that in American comedy, in the office in the U.S., um, they would certainly create really uncomfortable situations where you're cringing a little bit, like, oh, this is so awkward, but then they'd instantly resolve it and give you a laugh because we can't handle the tension. In the British version of The Office, they would create those tensions and then make you sit in it for like 30 seconds, 40 seconds. You're just like cringing on the couch. You're turning away. You don't want to watch anymore. And it goes on and it goes on. And it, the reason I tell you this is I'd like us as a community to be more like British comedy. Because I don't think most of us can handle the discomfort of somebody wrestling with their faith and we want to resolve it. Like, now, let me just say something. Let me just tell you something that, that refutes what you're saying. Let me just throw this in or I need to step back from you. I've had this conversation. I can't handle that and off we go. No, I want us to be more like British comedy and be willing to just sit in the tension a bit, the uncomfortable tension and not feel the need to resolve it so swiftly. Let's be content with being a safe place for the discontent. The scriptures tell us, have mercy on those who doubt. Let's be that kind of a community this fall as we dive into a series on doubt. But what should we do with our doubts? Marty Sampson, famous Hillsong worship leader, wrote an Instagram post a few weeks ago. I'll give you some excerpts of it. He said, time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it, he said. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. He goes on. How can God be love, yet send four billion people to a place because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. And then he says, Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. I am not in anymore. I want genuine truth, not the I just believe it kind of truth. And Marty, I want genuine truth too. When I read that a few weeks ago, my first thought was one of mercy. Genuine care for a guy who's written some of the songs we sing here. I also thought, you know, he's not alone. He voiced the doubt of countless others. But something also struck me as I read it. He said after each doubt statement that troubles him, no one talks about it. And if you agree with him on that, I have news for you and I have news for him. Thousands of people are talking about it and have been talking about it for thousands of years. And one of the treasures of Christianity is that throughout church history and today, brilliant, godly followers of Jesus have plumbed the depths of God's word while living in God's world and have incredible wisdom to share with us. 
So yes, we're going to look at suffering in the world. We're going to look at faith in science. We're going to look at hypocrisy in the church and others in the coming weeks. We're working off of a huge Barna research studies findings on the biggest barriers to faith. That's where we're going this fall. But at the same time, can I level with you? We'll never be rid of our doubts this side of heaven. Like there's no way to tie a neat, tidy bow on all of them. So if you face many doubts, I want to invite you this fall to, as we go through this, to dissect your doubts as we go. Here's what I mean. Hold your doubts up to as much scrutiny as you hold Christian doctrines to. Timothy Keller put it this way, the only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the alternate belief under each of your doubts and then ask yourself what reasons you have for believing it. How do you know your belief is true? It would be inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own, but that is frequently what happens. In fairness, you must doubt your doubts. My thesis, the thesis of his book, The Reason for God, is that if you come to recognize the beliefs on which your doubts about Christianity are based, and if you seek as much proof for those beliefs as you seek from Christians for theirs, you will discover that your doubts are not as solid as they first appeared. It's been said that you can do one of two things. You can doubt towards God or you can doubt away from God. I want to invite you this fall to doubt towards God. So what Timothy Keller is saying here is he's saying to be intellectually honest, don't just let a niggling doubt come in and trust that doubt while throwing away Christianity or a doctrine, but question your doubt as much as you question the Christian faith. That's, that's intellectually honest as we go about talking about doubt. But it's not merely an intellectual exercise. It's, it's a spiritual exercise in addition. And that's why I would say as we go through this process, doubt towards God, lean on God, look toward God as we go. Because your questions don't scare him. And the gospel can hold up under them. So ask away. So I think where some of us go wrong is that I, I really believe some of you are terrified to voice your, your doubts. Like, like that would be unchristian. You think that it's more faithful to shove down your doubts than to work through them. Keller goes on, a faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. So, so we do well to explore the hard questions of life, and we do well to do that together and to use God's very word as our guide. And we are going to begin our series this morning, right now, we are going to begin this series on doubt by learning to lament. That might seem odd to you as a starting place, but I'll explain it. 
What is lament? Well, a third of the 150 Psalms in our Bibles are lament. If you have a Bible and you open it up at the halfway point, you'll likely land in the Psalms. There's 150 of these songs, these Psalms. A third of them are laments. Think about that. The Psalms are the Jewish songbook, and a third of their repertoire voiced and sat in doubt-filled tension of life. The Psalms are where many of our songs in the church come from, yet lament is often a missing part of our corporate gatherings. But not only that, lament is a missing part of many of our lives. The first thing you do when you come out of the warm confines of your mother's womb is lament. You cry. You're born crying, and when you die, there will be crying. But to lament isn't only to cry. To cry is human. To lament, and lament like I'm going to show you this morning, is uniquely Christian. It's, it kind of has an upper and a lower dimension to it. The lower dimension of lament is, is that we live in the reality of a sin-fractured world. We live there every day, brokenness, sin outside and beyond us, and sin inside of us, so near to us. And so lament, part of it is, we lament over broken lives and our broken world. But there's an upper dimension to lament as well, and we often think lament and we think really negatively, like that's really sour or sad or hopeless, but the other aspect of lament is actually hope. See, this is where, where lament is uniquely Christian and crying is merely human. See, Jesus came as a man of many sorrows, acquainted with grief, knowing sin humanly better than anyone and coming to deal with it. See, Jesus came and addressed the greatest problem in the world, sin. And the Bible tells us that he will come again and make everything new and there will be no more sin and no more suffering and no more death, but not right now. And so, so part of lament is, 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 is a Christian crying out, why not now? Like, why not now? Why not now? Why not now, God? Mark Vrogop, in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, beautiful book, wrote, Lament is the song we sing in the space between pain and promise. It becomes the path between the poles of a hard life and trusting God's goodness. Lament helps us embrace two truths at the same time. Hard is hard, and hard is not bad. So, so lament is biblical prayer language that addresses the pain we experience and see in the world, but that is not without hope. Lament is like prayer in the desert for times when we're living in the gap between reality and hope, between pain and promise. Paul Miller put it this way in his book, A Praying Life. There is no such thing as a lament-free life. To love is to lament to let your heart be broken by something. If you don't lament over the broken things in the world, then your heart shuts down. Your living, vital relationship with God dies a slow death because you open the door to unseen doubt and become quietly cynical. Cynicism moves you away from God. Laments push you into his presence. So oddly enough, not lamenting leads to unbelief. Reality wins and hope dies. Put another way, 
The reality of a broken world triumphs over the new reality of a redeemed world. You miss the resurrection and get stuck in death. Sometimes people think of lament as the opposite of praise. It's not. Lament is the road to getting back to praise. And it's a road of saints. It's a road of broken people, honest before God, who trust in his salvation. So why start our series on doubt with a sermon on lament? The answer is simple. One sermon per massive doubt will only scratch the surface, and I want to point you to a biblical prayer language for addressing your doubts. You can keep using lament. So there are four elements of biblical lament. Let me share them with you, and then I'll, I'll, we'll observe them together in Psalm 13. Here's, here they are. First, turn to God for help. Second, bring your complaint to God. Third, ask boldly for help by calling on God to act. And fourth, choose trust and put your confidence in God. So lament is this, turn, complain, ask, trust. Let me read Psalm 13, see if you can identify those. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. First, turn to God for help. This is what the psalmist does. In this case, King David. How long, O Lord? I love how it starts. It takes faith to pray. It especially takes faith to pray in the midst of pain, questions, and doubt. Talking with all of its questions is better than silence. You know a relationship is really on the rocks when it's been silent for a while. It's actually better, even if it's somewhat frustrated, to start talking again. There's something far worse than lament, and that is silent despair. You've been so wounded and so hurt that you don't talk to God about a particular subject anymore or about anything at all anymore. Despair is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. You know what lament is? Lament is one of the deepest and most costly demonstrations of belief in God. To pour out your heart to him takes faith. This first element of lament is so critical because I know some of you have stopped praying to God about certain things. You're like, this thing, this area of my life, this has been going on for so long and nothing's happened. And so you just stop talking to God altogether about that thing. Even worse, because of the hard things or the doubts in your life, some of you have stopped talking to God altogether. 
There's something far worse than lament. It's silent despair. And the psalmist in his struggle cries with all his strength, how long, O Lord? That's a good thing. Second, bring your complaint to God. Here's his complaint. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Essentially, lament asks two questions. Where are you, God, and why is this happening? Where are you, and why this? Complaining to God is the best way to address the difficult emotions and difficult questions that surface when hard things come. Because even though the psalmist knows these things not to be true, they feel true nonetheless. And that's what it's like to be human. Had the Lord forgotten David, the king of Israel, forever? No. But it felt that way. You know, God is trustworthy, but it doesn't feel like he is. You know he's going to keep his promise, but you wonder, are you really? You know he's faithful and true, but you wonder, how in the world is this going to work out? You live in the tension between the beautiful promises of God and the reality of your life. And in that tension, that's called lament. I think we generally associate complaining to God as wrong, but is that always the case? It can't be. The Bible is full of complaints towards God. Fear, frustration, confusion, pain. Not only weren't they sinful, but they were set to music and the entire congregation sang their complaints to God. I'm not advocating for disrespecting God anger at God, accusing God. There is a line in which we can cross that is certainly sinful. I'm merely talking about complaining to God. And yet the practice of complaining to God seems foreign to many Christians. But bringing your complaints is central to lament. On the cross, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did Jesus really think that God had forsaken him forever, eternally? No. But his words give language to his position and his emotion and the pain of that circumstance of God turning his back on the son momentarily. God already knows what's going on in your mind and your heart. So talk to him about it. Third, ask boldly for help by calling on God to act. Verse three, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. When my kids ask me questions, like honestly and vulnerably, I'm inclined to lovingly listen to them. And... Uh, do you know why the Bible refers to God as our loving heavenly father? It's, it's not because he looked down on good dads and said, ooh, that'd be a good analogy for what I'm like. That's not what happened. God created the world, and in that world, he created the role of dad. 
And when a dad actually does right by his kids, it's just a mere shadow of what our loving Heavenly Father is like. Dads here are the analogy of our loving Heavenly Father. I'm inclined to lovingly listen to my kids ask me questions, even ask big things of me. And God is no different, so bring your questions to God. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 86. Here's a ton of things he asks just in one psalm. Preserve my life. Another one. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Another one. Teach me your way, O Lord. Another one. Unite my heart to fear your name. Another one. Give your strength to your servant. And finally, Show me a sign of your favor. In one psalm, he's asking, he's asking, he's asking God. And it's put in the Bible as a model. Go to God with your sorrow, with your suffering, with your doubt, and boldly ask him for help. Finally, fourth, choose to trust and put your confidence in God. This is a real turning point in a lament psalm, typically marked by the word but or yet. This is a movement from complaint to asking boldly to choosing to trust. There's other examples. In Psalm 22, it says, yet you are holy. In Psalm 69, but as for me, my prayer is to you. Psalm 86, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. I, I, I love how Psalm 13 starts. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And like just a few verses later, he's like, but I've trusted in your steadfast love. <laughs> so emotional. The psalmist has history with God and has found him to be trustworthy. So even as he cries out, even as he complains, even as he asks boldly, he reminds himself of the trustworthiness of God that he has experienced over and over and over again in his history. The psalmist clings to trust in the steadfast love of God on the basis of what, is, what God has done in the past, even though it doesn't feel like he's gonna come through in the present, which is what gave them confidence to pray in the first place. Choosing to trust requires reinforcing what we know to be true. Lament prayers are designed to remind us that God is worthy of our trust, even in this. Verse 5 declares, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. This trust connects to rejoicing in God's plan of redemption, like over and over and over again in the scriptures, God rescues his people. Suffering doesn't mean God has forgotten or rejected his people. God's plan of redemption is at work even in times we can't see it. By trusting through lament, we choose to rejoice without knowing how all the dots will connect. Again, back to the most famous ultimate lament when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he cried that from the cross, it would have appeared to all like all hope was lost. No, the Son of God is being executed. It's over. And yet, 
it led to the greatest moment of redemption. We can't always connect all the dots of what God's doing, but look to the cross where Jesus cried a lament. We couldn't conceive of how this could be a good thing, and it led to redemption. The dark night of the cross gave way to the dawn of the empty tomb. Over the past few months, I found the prayer language of lament to be such a gift to me. I kind of liken it like this. The first, the first few years of my marriage, I had a deep-seated fear that if my wife really knew me, she wouldn't love me. And it's only in more recent years that I've discovered that as my wife truly knows me, she doesn't love me less. She loves me more because vulnerability leads to intimacy. Doubt an honest talk with God about it, far from faith-destroying, brings greater intimacy with God. Paul Miller, again, we think laments are disrespectful. God says the opposite. We live in a deeply broken world. Lamenting shows you are engaged with God in a vibrant living faith. Central, I really look forward to walking through these doubts together with you this fall. And when it doesn't all tie up in a neat, tidy bow, like I said that it won't, gather with others, dig into God's word, and use the biblical prayer language of lament to bring your doubts to Jesus first and foremost. Will you do that? Let's pray. Jesus, Oh, you are so good, and it is so refreshing to us to hear that we can, we, we like Marty Sampson uh, posted, we can have real talk, and we can have that real talk with you. Lord, would you, um, would you draw us back to bringing our doubts to you first and foremost, not everybody else, and, and not bringing them to God, pretending like you don't hear or don't know, you know. I just pray for a fresh spirit among our our people this morning, Lord, that we would just be refreshed by this word, this biblical truth, this biblical prayer language as a vessel, as a tool to bring our hurt to you and strike up the conversation afresh, to talk to you, to complain, to ask boldly of you and to remind ourselves of your faithfulness and to place our trust in you afresh. God, I pray that you, your word, this community, would guide us as we we look through some, some really big doubts this fall. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen.